The Giant. Thinkers. Giant Thinkers Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, Giants. Ram Castillo here. This is episode number 80. Welcome to you listening right now, wherever you are. I'm incredibly grateful you've chosen this podcast to spend your precious time. Our guest today is a very successful entrepreneur specializing in the education space, having started and run nine businesses one of which is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. His primary business is Success Resources. It's the world's largest education seminar company with over 1 billion in sales through his businesses. He is considered an expert in the touring space, having run more than 1,400 events in the last 17 years, hosting thought leaders such as Tony Robbins, Gary Vaynerchuk, Grant Cardone, Jay Shetty, Robert Kiyosaki of Rich Dad Poor Dad, Sir Richard Branson, and many more. Success Resources have staged and marketed world-class events in the fields of management and leadership, sales and marketing, personal development, and wealth creation to over 10 million participants in regions including Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, China, UK, Spain, Germany, South Africa, Italy, India, US, and Canada. Some of the topics we spoke about include how he builds long-term partnerships with world-class thought leaders like Richard Branson, Tony Robbins, Gary Vaynerchuk, and Grant Cardone his non-traditional strategic approach when acquiring customers of what he defines as a fairly unorthodox approach that's not for everyone, how he pursues new market verticals and expands to other regions, how to move from transactional relationships and move that to transformational relationships, and all things related to scaling. So if you're someone that's interested in joint venture deals, partnerships, and relationships in the world of business and brand collaboration, then this episode is for you. Now, a quick note from me, if we are not connected on Instagram yet, I invite you to follow me on my handle, The Giant Thinker, as I share daily posts and stories to help decision makers, business owners, and leaders Get unstuck lightning fast through human-centered design methodologies, creative strategies, and personal experiences. Send me a DM as I would love to hear from you. I usually reply back within 24 hours. You can find me on my handle, The Giant Thinker. All right, let's get stuck in. I present to you the business building juggernaut, Michael Lane. Michael Lane, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast, mate. I'm pumped to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm amazing. Thanks for inviting me. Mate, it's a, it's a huge pleasure. Uh, to those listening, uh, I've been a fan of Michael, uh, been to some of the events that he's hosted. Um, now, first off, mate, I have an icebreaker question for you. What comes to mind when I ask, tell me something good? Wow. You know what? What comes to mind is what an amazing country we live in. Um, I'm so blessed to live and do business in a safe, amazing country like Australia. Awesome, mate. Bang on. Um, Where would you say your expertise lies? It's a great question. Uh, My expertise... I feel lies in scaling business opportunities. Okay. Tell us more. Tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, I've had a business for the last 18 years where I only partner with people who have amazing brands and so much so um, that I've never had a successful business on a product or service that I've built. Now, for your listeners out there, 
My business is partnering with the world's best entrepreneurs and touring them either physically or digitally around the world. So, you know, I've got the wonderful partners like uh, Richard Branson, who we've had for 11 years, or Tony Robbins for 25 years. And when I go to these guys, I kind of go to them and say, hey, I'd love to scale your ideology, your philosophies around the world. And that's just what I've become good at. And there's plenty of things I'm not good at. Uh, I've tried and failed nine businesses. And, you know, what I've realized is that I'm really good at partnering with people who have a product or service. And I'm really good at the sales and marketing side of that, which in any business is the hardest part in my kind of eyes. You know, you can have a great product, a great service, but if you can't grow it, if you can't get customers, it's really hard. Uh, so, yeah, partnering and helping amazing people scale is what I love. Fantastic, mate. I'm excited to dive into the nitty gritty of that. Before we do, can you share to us a little about your childhood and how you grew up? Yeah, look, I, I grew up in Brisbane for the first 11 years of my life. Um, great family environment. Uh, we moved to Sydney when I was 11. And yeah, uh, it was probably at the age of eight where I realized I was an entrepreneur. Now, between you and I, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I didn't know what that was. I just knew that I was a little bit different to my friends. Uh, I, was, I was reading Showboat, Fast Cars and Rob Report and my friends were buying basketball cards, rugby league cards and, and comic mags and I just knew there was something different. So, yeah, I, I had your typical great family environment but I was just motivated by things that were a little bit different. Um, I think what really solidified that was going to a boarding school in Sydney. And while my parents weren't well off, they got me into this very good school. And I was associating with now friends, but guys in, whose parents were very wealthy. They had private jets, they had homes in different parts of the world. And that really intrigued me, really excited me. So I, you know, I, I had a great upbringing and a great childhood. Fantastic. Mate, uh, we're going to go straight for the kill here. How did you build the world's largest education seminar company? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it didn't happen overnight and it didn't happen effortlessly. I'll tell you that much. Look, um, I bought into the company. It, the company has been going 26 years. I've been a part of it since 2003. And I finally put money into that about 12 years ago now. And back then we're only doing three events a year and we're doing about 8 million bucks in turnover. And between you and I, I bought in when the owner or the, the owner then was on his way out, he was going to retire. And I thought, this is great. I can get in, you know, I can probably do some cool stuff and see how we go. And then, very quickly in the next 18 months, we decided to all pony up and keep going and scale it quickly. And, you know, now when I look at 2019, we did 525 events in 37 countries. So in a 12 year period, we went from three events to 525, but Ram, there's some heartache. There's some ripping hair out. There's some sleepless nights. There's nights on the floor going, I don't know how we're going to get through this. So, it, you know, it's easy to, to say it now, but, geez, it was a tough way to, you know, uh, spend the last decade or so. Wow, wow. Okay. Um, a few things going through my mind, I guess. The first is um, there's a big difference between three events and 500-plus <laughs> in a year. Um, what did you think was a critical task when you were entering the business? that was impactful for your first year in, uh, in that business going from three events and, and at least ramping that up to double that at least. Yeah. Look, I, I knew the business really well. I was, I was in it and I, I knew the pieces of the puzzle. I knew what I could do with it. I knew how we could scale it. Um, but look, taking three events and going to five or six is really easy, right? The critical thing that got us mass expansion 
And this is going to sound interesting, but it was really easy for me to scale. So let me explain that because scaling is not easy. But when you ring up Tony Robbins, Richard Branson, uh, Gary V, a couple of cool people, and you say, hey, instead of coming all the way just to Sydney, how would you like to do 15 cities and we do a world tour? Now, Ram, that is very exciting to most people. So when I say it was easy to scale, the front end exciting part of it was, yeah, let's do a world tour and we'll go around and we'll have a bit of fun. That was easy. The hard part was actually executing that. So look, 18 to 24 months after I invested in the business, everything changed. We went from three events to 45 really quickly. And then we got up to about 200 in the first two years. So again, when you ring Tony Robbins and say, Tony, instead of doing Sydney and Melbourne, let's do Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore, Malaysia. We'll head over to the UK. We'll do three stops in Europe. We'll, we'll finish, uh, we'll go via Dubai and then we'll do 10 cities in the US. That's pretty simple. That's pretty easy but it was all the drama that comes with that. All the things of going, how do you get a merchant in Asia, in Middle East, in Europe, and, and all the complexities of that. So um, while it sounds easy to verbalize it now, it was a very, very busy two to three years. Goodness me. Okay. So I see one powerful strategic approach you had was leveraging the brands then of um, established uh, speakers and um, those that have uh, a community. Uh, are there any other strategic approaches that were different to how you approached year one in, in your first year in, in uh, the business versus year 10, let's say? Were there any other, I guess, strategic thinking um, in your uh, marketing and sales experience that you applied um, to influence an increase in acquisition, customer acquisition? Yeah. So if you go back to 2009, 2010, social media and monetizing social media hadn't come into play yet. So we would get a brand like Richard Branson and we would go out and, you know, we would do billboards, you do ad in the paper, you, you know, we had a good database, you do those kind of things. When you start to get to 2012, 2000, uh, 2012, 2013, and, and this Facebook platform uh, comes really into its own, then everything changed. Um, so we went heavy in on Facebook, uh, you know, heavy in on the Google ads platform as well. And that's when we started to get even more scale at a, at a more cost-effective rate. Um, you know, the organic component of Facebook back in 2012 and 13 was phenomenal. So, you know, we, we had a next sort of phase of scale when we figured out the Facebook component and that really, you know, amplified everything. But it's, it's funny, I, I kind of love the fact that joint ventures is a recession-proof marketing strategy. So for me, that's been my number one strategy for the last 20 years of everything I've done. So yes, we put, you know, a couple of million a month into Facebook even today. Um, but it's still not my biggest strategy for client acquisition. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff I'm doing right now is leveraging off the talent's own social media following, even from an organic point of view. You mean, Tony Robbins yesterday went out with something for us and at last count, I think we had 1,500 new client acquisitions in less than 24 hours. Uh, cost me zero. Um, he did a post for something for us and that, that venture yielded 1,500 new clients. So look, you know, when you've been in business as long as I have and we have, you try everything, all the new fads that come out. Do you mean, Ram, I'm on TikTok, for God's sake. <laughs> I, mean, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'll try it. I'll see if there's something there to figure out because um, you've got to keep sharp. And here's something I've been saying to some business owners recently is don't get to the point where you're stuck and beholden 
to a Facebook platform. If, if Facebook is your only strategy, then I fear for you. I fear that it's going to be a challenge at some point. Um, we need an omnipresent and an omni strategy for marketing holistically now. And there's many ways to look at that. But again, the ability to tap in and do a partnership deal with somebody who has your client base and is willing to share, willing to promote, and there's a mutual benefit there is still my best strategy and still the thing that I love to get up and try and collaborate on. I love that. And I've heard you speak about that a few times with your content. Um, let's uh, dive into that a little bit more because you have had built um, long-term partnerships with, uh, as you said, Tony Robbins, uh, many know Gary Vaynerchuk as well, Grant Cardone, Jay Shetty, uh, Robert Kiyosaki of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, Sir Richard Branson, of course, um, needs no introduction uh, to name a few. Now, what's the process from not knowing them at all to having represented them year on year when they visit Australia and throughout their tours around the world? Yeah, look, you know, you got to build an amazing relationship with these guys. Um, you can't be, you know, you can't just walk in there and, and play you the cards that you would if you're just trying to do a joint venture with someone in your local community. Uh, these relationships take time. They, they take a huge level of authenticity. Um, I, most of the relationships we have took me on average two years to build that relationship, to harbour and foster it. So they could see the values of me. And if they found the values of me, they might find the values of our organization. And it's probably been the greatest hack that I can share with anyone is be massively authentic with who you are and build relationships. And everything in my success resources business is a partnership or a relationship. I don't go, I do a bit of content. I do podcasts but I could never get on stage and, and do what these guys do. So to do that, you need to be a great partner. You need to build amazing relationships, but you need to be the best in your field. You need to be an expert, right? You know, no one wants to do business with somebody who's not an expert. So even my team, when, they, when they're on the phone with clients, when they're dealing with people, suppliers, be the expert, be the person that wants to be have engagement on the phone or wants to be liked and, and, and conversed with. So, you know, I've worked very hard at reinvesting money into our business to get us to a point where we are globally recognized as probably the best in our field. And that's just not me being arrogant. That's just, guess what? I don't have many competitors. I have competitors in a local, but I have no one who wants to really compete with us on a global level. That, that helps me. But I've worked hard and reinvested in the brand. So I've got huge market share globally. That gave me a level of expertise. So here's a, here's a hack run is that I could have taken money out of the business every year for the last 12 years, but I chose not to. I chose to build a business and build market share, build brand, build expertise so that I could partner with the world's best. And now I get huge ROI on doing that. So I'm not saying this is the strategy for everyone. I have a very clear goal of where I want to take the business and it's not necessarily built on EBITDA and profit. Um, it's very unique and very different, but I believe that when you're growing something significant that truly can impact the world, your valuation isn't necessarily based on EBITDA. Um, so for me, that's kind of what I do. I, I, build relationships. Jay Shetty is an amazing one. I met Jay 23 months ago in Dubai. I went to his event and I met him before he went on stage and I was meant to just be there and connect with him. I sat through his event for two days because the guy is an absolute genius when it comes to content, wisdom, going viral. And this month will be the first month that we actually profit from our relationship. So I've spent... 23 months harboring and fostering a relationship that I think will at least be a decade. And I've been adding so much value to Jay that it got to a point where he's like, Michael, how can we do business? So I think that's a big hack, right? Is if you want to do business with somebody, bring them value, bring them business, bring them connections. 
And that's been just an easy way for me to show who I am, show my values, and hopefully it'll come back and get a return. And so far it's worked pretty well. That's great. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. Um, when it comes to just off the back of that and, and digging deeper a little bit more on that area, um, I think to a point, a lot of people now, especially more than ever, have an understanding, a baseline understanding as to how we can um, interact and play in, in the, those communities of the people that we would like to connect with. You know, social media has made that very easy. Um, you know, uh, DMs especially, right? Like you can literally slide into someone's DMs and that's what I did with, with Kelly Slater after building rapport with him for uh, a year and a half before I got him on the podcast and that's just on the podcast. And now you and I were talking about business deals here and, and having them uh, partner um, uh, with, with uh, sort of shared values and, and shared goals. What, what's, what are you proposing to some of these partners um, that maybe listeners can walk away with and, and try or, or, or at least consider? Yeah. Great question, by the way. Um, not enough people ask me that question is I'm in the business of scaling some of the most amazing thought leaders and entrepreneurs on the planet. Um, when I go to a Jay Shetty and say, Hey, I've really connected with your work and I really believe I can scale it uh, to my 12 million clients in 37 countries. That's kind of an appealing opening sentence for most people. Um, you can only get there after you've done business for so long, but I'm always trying, I'm not putting money as the, as the main goal, you know, Earlier in my career, it was always money orientated. Now, here's, a, here's something that interesting that happened to me. Ram, when I started to put my attention on who I want to become and the difference I want to make, my business started to soar because all of a sudden it wasn't about me and what I can do and who I can, you know, what I can acquire and what I can have. So much so that I completely lowered the barrier of entry into my business if you want to become a client. So, for example, last year we did our 25th year anniversary of our most significant product, our National Achievers Congress. I had Grant Cardone and Gary V tour in 24 countries. I dropped that down to a 20, no, a $39 ticket in or equivalent in every region. So I massively dropped that down. And I did this and I've done this strategy for about three or four years now. And it's probably 250 times what I was doing four or five years ago. So to get to 150 million last year, I massively dropped the barrier, got more people into my business, more people interested in educating themselves and going out there and making a difference. So in the past, I would go in there and go, let's do a world tour and split $50 million each. And that was cool for the phase that I was in. And for the lower orientated people, who were still on the money journey, that was appealing. But when you start to talk to Tony Robbins, who, you know, he does 6 billion in revenue in his companies a year, you know, 72 billion a year virgin Richard Branson. When you say to them, let's go around the world and, and make, a, make a, a bit of money, it's just not on their radar. And so I had to evolve as a business owner. I had to go, if I want to get truly to the top one to 2%, where money is not the driver, it's not income, it's impact. And when I flipped the switch on that and said, you know what, Sir Richard, what can we do for the next five years to massively change the way entrepreneurship is perceived and received around the world and raise a bit of money for your charities? That got so much more attention than, hey, maybe you can make 10 million bucks out of this. So, you know, we all evolve as entrepreneurs. We all evolve as leaders. Um, I started to take my attention off what I could have and the impact I could make. And that really started to help me. Yeah, that's a really, really good example. Um, when you drop a price point um, to punt for more volume, what, I mean, how do you navigate through that uncertainty? Because there isn't a little bit of uncertainty there. Like, you, you know, you can pump as many, Facebook ads, Google ads, et cetera. But how do you guarantee at least a break even point when it comes to having an event like that? And I think it's just important for people to, you know, I think that lands very clearly. Um, the, 
the sort of public pricing structure versus the um, the the deal structure for the internal um, partners that you have. But when it comes to actually pricing and lowering that, and it's great that in theory that um, has happened for your business. What about those businesses who are a bit scared and fearful to lower their price and then they feel like maybe they're lowering, you know, because to a point pricing is perception as well of brand and of quality. So talk to us a little bit about your thoughts around that. Look, it was not a um, a decision that I took lightly. And again, this was a massive epiphany, intuitive decision. Uh, I've learned to deal with my intuition in a very particular way. And when it comes through and almost comes through me and it's so clear and so succinct and so aligned to my 10 year version of who I want to become and the difference I want to make, I tend to not go against that. So when I had that moment where I'm like, damn, we're used to paying $99 for our cheapest ticket and go down to 39. That's a huge significant drop. Um, now I did calculate, you know, entrepreneurs, it's easy just to come up with an intuitive decision, but you need to quickly do a feasibility on it, right? You need, you can't, if I followed every intuition, uh, and just actioned it, oh my gosh, I'd be, I'd be a very different business operator, but I follow my intuition categorically and then I do a feasibility on it. And um, I got to the point where I was like, it'll take me. 120 days to break even instead of maybe 60 days. But then if I've got a more mass market, if I can grow my market share, if I can get more clients in my funnel and monetize them and add so much value that I increase the LTV of my client, then I'll eventually get that money back. And I remember my team saying, dude, I don't know about this. You know, we've got a model here, it works, it feels right. And look, um, after we did this, you know, I started to get, instead of 3,000 to our events, I started to get 6,000, 7,000. Last year for our, our 25th anniversary, I had 18,000. Um, now, when you've got 18,000 people in a crowd in a couple of cities um, looking at you and you put the right programs and the right products into that and you're patient, and you're customer focused, you're client orientated, you're impact focused, not income focused, then I think you'll always get an ROI on that. It just meant that I had to hold my breath a little bit longer. And we're three to four years into that new model. And it took me from 60 million to 150 last year. Um, and it's paid off so far. And that's, that's, Really helpful, I think, for listeners and, and myself personally, because you what you touched on there, which was critical, is the timeline. That there there is a timeline to this, and um, one of the, uh, the 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 core sort of business principles, right? Isn't it? It's the lifetime value, as you said, LTV. The lifetime value um, of a customer um, has to be um, greater than the the cost of acquisition. So, um, you know, a lot of custom, a lot of business owners are paying tons for customer acquisition and then the lifetime value is just a one-off. Whereas it sounds like your, your market share is, and, and the, the, the generosity of lowering that price gives people a little more access, a little bit more, um, trust, a little bit more of a taste as to what success resources can offer them. And then maybe they get introduced and that cross pollinates to other speaker lineups that they will be introduced to. And then they become hopefully not just the one off. Right. And I, I, I love yeah. that you did that. Yeah. And look, here's the thing. When you put your attention on servicing your client, you get a longer LTV as long as you've got a product line. Right. Um, we were too wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Come in. We'll, we'll try and take as much money off you as we can in a really short period of time and move on to the next tour, which is very much the promoter model. But when I flipped that scenario and gone, you know, we spent so much money acquiring a lead and we're profiting from them in over a six month period. You know, this is crazy. What have we got to do to continue to, you know, harbor and foster this relationship? And we did that. We became very customer focused 
And I started to do deals and acquisitions to lengthen the lifetime value. So let's say they come into the funnel on a Tony Robbins low cost acquisition. They go to a Tony Robbins event and I might profit at some point in the next six months or, you know, how, or four to six months. But then that client is an amazing client for a business program or a wealth creation program. Or I've recently acquired a finance and mortgage brokerage arm. And now I'm acquiring a lead based off a, some of the amazing talent that we partner with at an extremely low cost in an industry in finance that's typically a $1,500 lead acquisition cost. So I'm just lengthening my product offering. I'm lengthening the lifetime value of my client and I'm using the big brands to acquire a lead and not profiting in the first 90 to 120 days. And I know the value will come down the track. You know, we're not talking about any epiphanies here in global marketing, you know, strategy. But for me, you know, a guy who grew up in Brisbane dreaming of, you know, having some cool things, liaising with some of the cool people on the planet, uh, it's kind of served me well. And I'm, I'm so glad that I continue to work on myself every day and putting good stuff in here and strategies, listening to the world's best. And that's what continues to help me intuitively make a decision and move forward. Fantastic, mate. What was success resources competitive advantages early on, like in the establishment phase of the business life cycle? Like how did you identify those competitive advantages? It was really simple. I just had bigger balls than anyone else <laughs> had a check bigger than anyone else would cut the check. So what I mean by that is back in the days in the 2000s when you could go get a speaker or somebody and if you want and back in the day it was very much because you're competing for market share back in the day. What it was was who could write the bigger check to get the bigger name to get the bigger tour. And I was dabbling in C and B grade talent and I was sitting there going, this is too hard. It's not, you know, not compelling, not exciting. And you know what, if we're going to have to invest more money to get a bigger bang for our buck, a bigger talent pool. And when we did that, we instantly got the, our competitive advantage because most people didn't back themselves to cut the check and figure out how to make money from it. So that was probably the first and the earliest and the simplest way back then to actually create a, a competitive advantage. Interesting. Because talent trumps everything. But here's the thing. I thought that was the philosophy until I witnessed probably one of the best events that I've ever seen. And it wasn't one of mine. It was, I'm going to forget all these names. It was six iconic people. George, <clears throat> excuse me. George Clooney, Russell Simmons, um, bugger, I've forgotten all of them. You just think it was six amazing people, right? And I went to this and I was a competitor and I went, this will trump everything. This is the best lineup you'll see. And, and, and I'm sitting there going, looking around the auditorium going, there's 200 people here. They've spent probably 2 million just on speaker fees. And then I realized it wasn't just paying the big bucks to get the right talent. You need to have the systems, the processes, the, the, the funnel. They, had, they didn't sell anything on the back end. There was nowhere for the clients to go. I'm, I'm assuming they ripped up 1.8 million bucks on that. So it's not just cutting a check for the best talent. You've got to know what to do with it, how to monetize the opportunity, how to find value in the opportunity. So, um, yeah, it's, there's, some, there's some good ways to do it and there's some bad ways to do it as well. Is it that they just didn't uh, promote it in, what do you mean by, in your mind, systems and processes? They, um, it was the best kept secret in town. No one knew about it. I think they, it was their very first event. They put everything into talent because I think maybe they saw us getting the big names and going, if we get that person, they will just come. 
right? It's like if you build it, they'll come type, yeah. of, type of thing. And then if that's opening the night, it's crickets. <laughs> that's it. And, and the planet is constantly seeing that with tours and, you know, Broadway shows and movies, all these different things. So, you know, you've got to have a mixture of the strategy, the execution and the courage to be able to pull the trigger on it, see it through and figure out how you make it work. Do you believe in the, uh, the, the sort of percentage split and, and it varies, but it's kind of like very, very much a, a higher spend on marketing. You know, I've heard people say, spend 5% on your product and service and 95% on marketing. And there's different versions of that. But the idea is that going heavy on market spend because of that very reason. I mean, what, what are your thoughts around that? No, look, I, I don't have a philosophy. You know, I, I've heard similar things where, you know, X percentage should be spent on this and don't spend X percentage on that. You know, I, I disagree. I think you've got to understand the LTV, but understand the way that you value the client how you are remunerated for the client, how you profit from the client. Um, you know, in some things that I do, I spend a fortune on marketing. And because, but I know that year two of that program, um, because there's a subscription component and it's costly to get the first year, the first client, but I know the lifetime value is three and a half years on a membership, then I'll spend a heap of money year one, right? Um, I think most people don't truly understand the value of their client and they're looking at as, and we've talked a little bit about LTV on here, but you know, if I knew that the lifetime value of a client was three and a half years and I could make 25,000 per client, I would spend, and I'm talking 25,000 per year, I would spend 25,000 and make nothing for the first year because I know that year two, three and three and a half, I'm going to get a three to five times return on that. Then I'll do that. It all depends on your business. It all depends on the situation. It all depends on how you value your client. Most people are transactional. They're not transformational. Transformational is how do we grow a long lifetime value of this client? You can't do that by being transactional. You have to be transformational. So, that's where I think entrepreneurs need to evolve and not look at their quarterly or their 12 month profit forecast and look at what's the value of the business in five to 10 years. Superb mate. Um, have you got any tried and tested advice that comes to mind for entrepreneurs, business owners, when it comes to negotiation and leverage, um, especially when they don't have enough, or that they don't have a large enough at this point influence or authority in their mind yeah. um, in their, in their industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, people think I'm crazy for this ideology, but it's worked really well for me is I, I love doing joint ventures where I give an obscene amount of equity to a partner. Now, if it's not an equity deal, it's a revenue split or a profit split or whatever it is. Um, I don't necessarily like doing equity splits, because the business may not be sellable. And there's a lot of people who are doing deals based on things they know nothing about because they think I got 25% equity in this business, but the business is not sellable, right? So uh, I'm huge on structuring the deal to get massive value. Here's a quick insight before I come back and answer that question is I personally take a percentage of revenue. I don't take a salary. I haven't taken a salary for 18 years. The way that I get remunerated in all my deals, all my businesses, it's almost like a merchant fee. I take two to 4% of turnover because turnover is consistent. Rev uh, profit is not consistent. People think every business makes profit. It doesn't. Even if your business makes profit, does it pay a dividend? I haven't paid myself a dividend in one business ever. So what I do is I like to look at the deal and go, damn, you know what? That's not sellable. There's no point in me getting in and, and bartering for equity. I'll take 2% of turnover. And so every deal is different. You've got to understand the dynamics and what's got to come from the deal. Now, let's say you're at the negotiation table and you're an earlier entrepreneur. And that for me, anyone under 40, you're early in this game. 
you got a long, long life of doing deals. And I don't want to be the negative guy on here, but if you're holding on to the equity in your concept and you think it's going to get to a billion dollars and it's not your 17th deal, but it's your first or second, it's probably not going to get to a billion, right? I had the same aspirations. I failed nine businesses because I didn't understand this lesson I'm about to tell you is if it's of your current existing business, do that. If it's not, start a new co-company, clean slate. Go to somebody and go, hey, Ram, I'm going to give you 75% of this new co-company. I'm going to give them an obscene amount of, of equity or revenue or profit. And that's going to completely change their perception. Because guess what? People don't walk into your office very often and go, got a new idea. We're world-class at this and we want to partner with you and we want to give you 50 to 75%. Trust me, after they fall off the chair and get back up, they'll go, tell me more. What does this look like? Right? So if you're negotiating and you're taking a long-term view on this thing called entrepreneurship, do your entrepreneurial apprenticeship, give away an obscene amount of money and think about that. It's probably not going to be the deal that gets to a billion. Well, who can you, learn from? Who can you partner with? Who can you say you're in business with? Um, one of my famous deals that I love to talk about is a deal that I did for 95% I gave to a company and I took 5%. But that company, I said I was in business with and I used to go around and pitch other deals and said, oh yeah, XYZ, PTYLTD are my partners. And the next 18 months, I did $10 million worth of deals off that name that I did business with. And to be honest, I didn't make really any money out of that deal, but I used the currency of the connection that I had. So if you're negotiating, don't go into a boardroom and go, we'll give you 5% of our new company. This is, this is my craziness when I think about Shark Tank, where people go in there and they go, my company's worth a million and it's probably worth 200 grand. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They get the valuation completely wrong. And they go, I'll give you 7% for an obscene amount of money. And I just think, oh my God, this is just pointless. Here's what I would do, right? I would walk into the shark tank and go, I am a market leader in this, 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 and this. I pitch my thing the way I do it. I would undersell the opportunity. And I would say, for $2, $10, $100, bucks, some silly amount of money, I want to give away 50% equity in my business. And I would want to see their face go, this guy's crazy, but he's got a business here and this thing, he's going to give it away. Imagine you had two or three sharks bartering. Michael, take me. I will give you 20 grand for 50%. I'll give you 30 grand. You could start bartering them up. But more importantly, the currency is the relationships and the proximity to the expert. Because again, it's a long life. Learn what you can. That you get to entity and opportunity number four, five, or 13. And because you invested in that a year ago, five years ago, a decade ago, you're going to win long term. It's an unorthodox strategy. I appreciate that. And some of you are scratching your head right now. And if you are and you listen to this, make sure you tag Ram and I and, and go, Michael, what the hell are you talking about? And I'd love to help you with that. But I've just found that's been a great way for me to do business. Man, I actually um, heard you talk about this and I'm so glad you brought it up in this podcast. So I heard you talk about it on LinkedIn. You, you, you put up a clip about it and um, that word there, unorthodox. I, I think in many ways it's quite genius actually, <laughs> because um, for me personally, and I can only speak for myself, but I'm a huge fan of taking a sidestep before you take a forward step and not a lot of people are willing to take a sidestep. And I say this all the time with my events and, and the people that I speak to in my Q and A's and, and things like that. I say, take hundreds of sidesteps, right? Like you want a forward step so badly, but by, by, by doing that, uh, you're not, you're not doing the tango. And, and in a way it's just like a soccer player kicking a soccer ball around. They're not going gun ho straight they're going back sometimes they're going sides before they kick that goal. And so, um, mate, I love that you brought that up. It's something I think people are going to be thinking about for sure. Um, any other thoughts around that? 
Um, oh, geez, I've got so many. Um, only because I've done so many deals that didn't work. Let's be really honest. Um, I've left billions of dollars on the table uh, from deals that I, I stuffed up, deals I didn't do properly, things that were great, thing, ideas that were phenomenal. I just couldn't execute it. I, I couldn't figure it out. So, you know, there's a portion of your audience now who I think are, are built like you and I. We understand, you've got to pick what you're really good at. What I've started to do, which was a huge opportunity for me, is to let go of any execution. So in business, I believe there's two areas, strategy and execution. They go hand in hand. You can't do anything without both of them. I just really stick to my lane, which is strategy. And I pay for people, I partner with people, I joint venture with people who can execute. So Ron, when I got out of the day-to-day of running my businesses and just work on strategy, just radically innovate new ideas, new concepts in my businesses is where I started to get that scale. That's where the $39 opportunity came from. If I'm stuck in executing involved in the fulfillment of my business and my delivery of my product or service, I don't have the bandwidth to be able to truly strategize. So when I forego any kind of fulfillment, and I, right now, one of my companies, i got one company has 250 employees, another one has 120. I'm telling you now, Ram, this sounds crazy. I don't do anything apart from work on strategy and lead. That's it. And I've just built my businesses around that so I don't get burdened down with being around the encumbrance of having to be a cog in the wheel. And it changed everything. Now, not all business owners can do that yet. But my idea is go get people who can execute. Go give away equity. Go pay people. Do whatever you can to give you space, time, bandwidth to strategize. And that's how you grow fast and fun. No, that's superb. Um, I've got a few more questions for you, mate. Um, when, when it comes to data, um, it can obviously inform us uh, to some degree. How do you and your businesses use data to inform your decisions and, and to form insights uh, with the, 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 the many sort of options that, are, that can sometimes cripple people with, uh, with analysis paralysis and all that type of thing? Look, data is imperative to any business. Um, we have data analysts in various departments within our businesses, uh, whether it's marketing, whether it's digital marketing. Um, the analytics side of digital marketing is critical. The analytics side of, you know, the customer service, you know, you, you, if you don't have data, you can't make decisions. So, I remember employing somebody seven, eight years ago and I came up with the title of business analyst. And to be honest, I had no idea. I read a book from somebody saying, you need to get someone who specializes in the data. And I went, you know what? That makes a lot of sense because I'm sitting here going, I'm trying to go through and spend hours in a day finding data, finding things. When I hired somebody to compile data in a way that I can make quick, fast, effective decisions, is the best hire ever made. So we can get lost in the analysis paralysis, but get an expert, get someone who loves crunching the numbers, who believes they're walking every day to their nirvana, who can look at numbers every day and pull out this stuff. So, you know, the technology we have, the phones, what we can get on our phones right now, I can check when a sale is made in any country, in any region, at any time of the day at the push of a button. I can check my engagement ratios on emails. I can check how much money I'm spending online with campaigns. Anything in my business, if I don't have some data around it, it's not truly scalable. You're right. So it, it's a huge component and every business owner needs to invest in it because if you don't, you're going to be costing yourself so much by trying to figure out or believe anecdotally what you think the outcome is or what the result is. Find ways. There are so many ways right now to get analytics sent to you. Nearly every platform for any area of any business has push notifications for you to get data. It's imperative. Fantastic. 
Mate, for those listening who are looking to expand or pursue new market verticals or to explore other regions, I think something unique about you is um, that you have um, done that in other countries, in other cities. What advice or thoughts have you got for listeners who would like to do that? Look, here's what I would suggest, and I stuffed it up several times, so I'm giving you only my truth, is do a joint venture in that region before you go invest in doing it yourself. So Dubai uh, or the Middle East, I had a joint venture there for three years, testing the market, testing how it would go before I went and actually got an office and did it myself. I did that because when I expanded into South Africa, I thought, look at me, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to have an office in South Africa. And I stuffed everything up. So you learn lessons. Don't be the Muppet that I was and go try and do it based on ego. Partner with somebody in that region who is the best in their region and figure out how you bring your product or service into an alignment where there's a partnership, an equity relationship, a collaborative, you know, version of something and get them to test it. You know, they, they are probably five to 10 years ahead of you. You know, when I went to South Africa, um, when I first went there, they didn't use credit cards. So we had people transacting in cash. Now here's what's even crazy about that. When you run an event in South Africa, there are two payment cycles. Government payday is one particular day. Private sector payday is one particular day. If you miss those days, you, you, you're doing a lot of hard work and not getting paid. And then when they finally got money, they're coming into the office with shoe boxes of cash. Another big problem in Africa, if you've got shoe boxes of cash. So be smart, strategically partner. And, and if you're in something for the long term, you don't mind testing it for two or three years with somebody else, right? And then you might go, so you're aware this is a one to three year deal. We want to partner with you. We may come into this market and want to do it ourselves. We may want to continue to do it with you in the future, right? I've got so many, I've got 19 regions around the world where I don't have a company, but I have a joint venture partnership and a relationship or a reseller agreement in those areas. Now, when they continue to grow, I might come in and go, hey, we see this as a growth area for us and now we wanna come in. It's just about having a longer term vision and doing it strategically. Perfect, mate. So a question I ask all my guests, Michael, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to your junior self, the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell him? Don't chase the money. <laughs> Whatever you do, it is an illusion. It is not real. It does not equate to happiness. Uh, Ram, I, I chased money. I, I was, you know, I told you the eight-year-old, the 13-year-old of me always just saw the Ferrari instead of the Ford. And I thought it was all money. And I thought if I got money, I could buy cars and cool shit and it would make me happy. And that happiness dissipates. It's not long lasting, it's not sustainable. And when I started to get all that stuff out of my system and realize it wasn't making me happy, then I quickly changed the way that I did business and the way that I live my life. That's what I would tell my, my younger self, if you want to say that. Hang on, right on the 30 second mark. <laughs> uh, who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? Someone that has inspired you to think bigger, to dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? Tony Robbins. I mean, I remember being backstage with Tony and he said to me, Michael, what's your plan? And I said, oh, I want to do this. I want to do cool shit. And he's like, if you've got a plan for yourself, you'll only impact yourself. If you've got a plan for humanity, you'll impact humanity and you'll actually do some cool stuff in this world. After hearing that back in 2011, I haven't looked back. Oh, mate. That's very Tony Robbins style, isn't it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, so what's next for you, Michael, with everything you're involved in for the rest of the year and beyond? Look, I've got various ventures and various things. They all have an education component. Even my finance company, rather than just doing 
finance options for everyday Aussies. I put a, an education component in at the top of that. And we now are Australia's largest financial educator. Um, every venture I do, anything I do, it is all aligned to my one mission and vision, which is to impact 1 billion people positively through education. So the next 10 years are very clearly mapped out. Everything from Hollywood stars, sports, musicians, the greatest people on the planet who have influence and trying to partner with those people so that they can make a positive impact on the planet is how I'm going to get to a billion people. Michael Lane, who grew up in Brisbane, if I go out there and try and do it all myself, I will never get there. If I partner with the world's best who have got the most eyeballs, the most attention, and who could probably help someone on their journey and share with them the pitfalls of their success, the lessons of their success. And if I can do that at scale, I think I can get pretty close to that. So cool. And how can listeners get in touch with you online, my friend? Yeah, look, I'm on nearly every platform. I'm huge and very bullish on LinkedIn um, and Instagram. My handle is it's Michael Lane. It's Michael Lane. Yes, we will tag. We'll tag every uh, every sort of uh, touch point on this uh, post when this goes out. Uh, Michael, mate, the opportunity to speak one one on one with you has just been mind blowing, mate. I knew it was going to be epic uh, because you know we we rarely see the people um, behind the big names that partner with these big names, and it's so cool to have chatted with you today, mate. I'm honestly so grateful. I appreciate it. And I just want to acknowledge you. Um, you know, I mean, the world needs more leaders and you're a leader. I love following you. I love your content. And if anyone listening to this and you appreciate this, give Ram a bit of love. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you, mate. That means a lot. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, wonderful giants. I'm so grateful that you've made it this far as I know our time is precious. Thank you truly for spending time with me today and with Michael Lane. Please send him a hi and hello over on his Instagram. I'm sure he'd absolutely love to hear from you. His handle is it's Michael Lane. If you're enjoying these episodes, one massive way that will help keep the show going is leaving an iTunes review. If you head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review, uh, I read and appreciate every single one. That link will take you straight to it and uh, it will help get the show in front of people who might need these stories and insights from our world-class guests. A little teaser for our next episode. It is a double whammy, two guests in one interview. They are both co-hosts of a business podcast that is quickly climbing up the ranks. One of them is the founder and CEO of Design Cuts, the highest rated online marketplace for designers. Design Cuts helps their community of 550,000 members save money off the best digital resources to help their regular creative projects. He is also a podcaster, as I mentioned, uh, not just one, but of two shows, and he loves mentoring fellow creatives to help them master their marketing. The other guest is an award-winning creative director, designer, and agency veteran. In 2002, he founded the creative agency Riser, which provided design and development services for clients, including Disney, Google, Warner Brothers, Fox, NBC, ABC, National Geographic, and many other high-profile brands. He sold that agency in 2015, and now spends his time speaking, developing books, courses, and social media content to help creatives level up. He is also the author of a very popular book called Burn Your Portfolio. And his latest, The Psychology of Graphic Design Pricing. This app is a cracker and it will be out very soon. If you subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app, Uh, iTunes, Spotify, and many others, you'll be notified on when that goes live, which will be very, very soon. Now, for any questions, 
regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is on Instagram. Send me a message via my handle, The Giant Thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote from Michael Lane. I loved this. He said, most people are transactional. They're not transformational. Transformational is how do we grow a long lifetime value for people? You can't do that by being transactional. You have to be transformational. Transformational.